0: The reading today is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and, uh, verses 1 through 13, and then from verses 22 to 24. If you'd like to follow along, you may do so. It's on page 6 of the book. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
1: Buenos días. La lectura esta mañana es Génesis capítulo 3, versículos del 1 al 13, versículos 22 24. La serpiente era más astuta que todos los animales del campo que Dios el Señor había hecho. Así que le preguntó a la mujer, ¿Es verdad que Dios les dijo que no comieran de ningún árbol del jardín? Podemos comer del fruto de todos los árboles, respondió la mujer. Pero en cuanto al fruto del árbol que está en medio del jardín, Dios nos ha dicho, no coman de ese árbol, ni lo toquen, de lo contrario morirán. Pero la serpiente le dijo a la mujer, no es cierto, no van a morir. Dios sabe muy bien que cuando coman de ese árbol, se les abrirán los ojos y llegarán a ser como Dios, conocedores del bien y del mal. La mujer vio que el fruto del árbol era bueno para comer y que tenía buen aspecto y era deseable para adquirir sabiduría. Así que tomó de su fruto y comió. Luego le dio a su esposo y también él comió. En ese momento se les abrieron los ojos y tomaron conciencia de su desnudez. Por eso, para cubrirse, entretejieron hojas de higuera. Cuando el día comenzó a refrescar, oyeron el hombre y la mujer que Dios el Señor andaba recorriendo el jardín. Entonces corrieron a esconderse entre los árboles para que Dios no los viera. Pero Dios el Señor llamó al hombre y le dijo, ¿Dónde estás? El hombre contestó, Escuché que andabas por el jardín y tuve miedo porque estoy desnudo, por eso me escondí. ¿Y quién te ha dicho que estás desnudo? le preguntó Dios. ¿Acaso has comido el fruto del árbol que yo te prohibí comer? Él respondió, La mujer que me diste por compañera me dio de ese fruto y yo lo comí. Entonces Dios, el Señor, le preguntó a la mujer, ¿qué es lo que has hecho? La serpiente me me engañó y comí, contestó ella. Y Y dijo el Señor, el ser humano ha llegado a ser como uno de nosotros, pues tiene conocimiento del bien y del mal. No vaya a ser que extienda su mano y también tome del fruto del árbol de la vida y lo coma y viva para siempre. Entonces Dios, el Señor, expulsó al ser humano del jardín del Edén para que trabajara en la tierra del cual había sido hecho. Luego de expulsarlo, puso al oriente del jardín del Edén a los querubines y una espada ardiente que se movía por por todos lados para custodiar el camino que lleva al árbol de la vida.
2: One thing I forgot to mention at the end of the baptism was that uh, the Saltzmans would love to celebrate this occasion with you. And so they've kindly provided some dessert. And so you'll see downstairs, if you do stay for lunch, that the dessert has been uh, generously provided uh, by the Saltzmans. Thank you for doing that uh, for us and and with us. And so uh, do say thank you by eating a lot of dessert. How about that, huh? Okay. Let me say a word of prayer as we look at this passage. God, we are asking for your kindness, your gentleness, your clarity, Holy Spirit. Especially as we ponder what this passage tells us about ourselves, about the world around us, about you. As we grapple, even with words and ideas like sin, it can be hard. We can be resistant. Uh, open up and unlock those resistances. Uh, Not just that we would see truth, but that we would see the glory of your grace in Jesus. So, come and open our eyes and bless this time in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live broken lives. We live in... A broken world. And we're reminded of this, of course, by daily experience, but also by words like these from Bob Dylan, great poet, thoroughly expressing, memorably expressing, almost depressingly expressing the extent to which our lives Seem to be bombarded with brokenness. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words are never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath, feel like you're choking, everything is broken. Broken hands on broken plows, broken treaties, broken vows, broken pipes, broken tools, people bending, broken rules, hound dog howling, bullfrog croaking, everything is broken. And of course, even in a week like this, a weekend like this, we're reminded of these realities all around us, around the world. As we look at this anniversary of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, now one year later, still no trace of any person lost, of the airplane lost. As we celebrate or remember the 50-year anniversary of Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, noting, of course, the great progress, by God's grace, our nation has made, and yet still a nation broken with racial strife and injustice and much need of healing. Even more locally, even just last night, 9.40 p.m., just down the street a few blocks in Ogden Place, another young individual shot and killed. You don't have to go that far, even though you can just look at yourself in the mirror in your own heart. I know I can. Brokenness in my own life, broken relationships the sin and selfishness of myself. We're broken, we're sinful, we're needy. And if you've been with us throughout our study of Genesis, you know that that's not how things used to be, that's not how things were intended to be. The human race, we were created in God's image, in His likeness, brimming with glory and radiance. Made for him in uninterrupted communion with God. We even see it here in this passage, this time when Adam and Eve would take walks with God. Can you imagine that? Perfect relationship with one another. No selfishness, no forgetting appointments, no backbiting, no envy. Can you imagine a life without envy? Fully grateful when another person succeeds and you don't. Where work was satisfying and not with any tainting of frustration or failure. The created world around us was immaculate. No death. No disease. No decay. They called it paradise. And so what happened? What Happened, what went wrong with us, with the world, and without a doubt, it must be said that everything being broken is not the full extent of reality It's not the entire story. It is a true part of the story, but the image of God remains in us. Life does have much blessing and goodness. God is present. There's joy and laughter and beauty and truth and functionality and wholeness in life. We're a mixed bag, aren't we? But the question remains, how did we get this way? What's wrong with the human race? What's wrong with the world? And the Bible's answer, and this passage's answer in Genesis 3, is sin. That everything that's wrong with the world and everything that's broken about life can be attributed to human sin. Which doesn't mean, of course, that everything including earthquakes and bad occasions and such necessarily can be pointed directly to some individual sin. But all things can be pointed at least to the first original people's sin, Adam and Eve. Here's the story of everything that went wrong with the world. And we're going to be camping out on it for the next three, four weeks. Three quick points we're going to see in this passage first to kick us off. The essence of sin, and secondly, the effects of sin, and then finally, the healing or the cure for sin. The essence of sin, the effects of sin, and then the healing of sin, the essence of sin. What, what is it? It's a word that sort of intimidates or turns off or scares away, but what really is Sin? We're told about it in story form here, of course, when we find and see here Adam and Eve in perfect paradise with God, eating from the tree of a knowledge of good and evil. Define God's command not to eat of that tree. And what was so bad about eating just that little fruit? I mean, just how petty it might seem. Can God get... That he just gets so worked up about such a little thing? I mean, what, was there something wrong with the fruit itself? Was it poisonous fruit? Is this a case of sort of an ancient snow-white type of tale? What was wrong with it? We get a hint of it a little bit. In verse 5, when we hear the serpent, that is Satan, incarnate there. Talking, and one of the last few words that he speaks before Eve and Adam take from this fruit is this false promise that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What is the essence of sin? What's the heart of sin? Sin is putting yourself first making yourself numero uno in life, in relationships, in everything your thoughts, your desires, your plans, your needs your words with those around you but most especially and centrally with God. You see the heart of sin is putting yourself in the place of God. When this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was placed in the middle of the garden by God, it was sort of a a test, but more fully, it was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to exercise trust in God, to say, we can't see everything, we can't know everything, you are God and, and we are not, and we like it that way, we trust in you. But here we see the grasping... You might say even the lusting of a power and a mind and a heart that wants to be God. Even rules in life, the commands of Scripture, you say, well, I thought sin was about breaking the rules, and it is true there are a lot of things that the Bible says about things we shouldn't do or should do or shouldn't think or desire or should, and it's True, there are rules, but do we understand that all of those rules are simply sort of situation-specific outworkings of this idea that what you're called to do is love God and love neighbor. And here's what love looks like in detail. In your conversations, not to lie, but to tell the truth. In your sexuality, to to honor and not simply to take. Uh, You know, in, in your money, to give generously and not simply to steal. But with respect to rules dealing with avoiding sin, it's situation-specific ways in which we are called to cease trying to play God. After all, if you think about it, what is underneath the bitterness of our hearts? Isn't it that you are willing to pronounce yourself as judge over another person and say, that person does not deserve forgiveness? I am God. Or what is it that's underneath worry? Well, I I don't know if things are going to work out. I don't know what the future holds for me. I I need to grab a hold of the steering wheel of life, anxious of heart. What is that? But a quiet statement, even though it doesn't feel like it often, that I am or want to be God. Or what's underneath A, a bad temper lashing out with words or fists? but a person that insists that they have every right to mete out punishments according to people's wrongs. I am God. Or what's underneath various forms of sexual lust, but this assertion, this belief that your body belongs to me, mine for my consumption, my enjoyment... You know, and you have to understand that it doesn't start with waking up in the morning and say, Hey, you know, I'd like to be my own God today. You know, we don't think like that. It doesn't process that way. It doesn't feel that way. And it wasn't that way with Eve either. The serpent comes to her, we see in verse 1. He says, did God really say... Have you heard that lately in your heart? Did God really say... Just raising a crack of suspicion or doubt in the integrity of God. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? When in fact, if you were to flip back or if you remember in Genesis 2, what God actually said was that you are free, my children, to eat from any tree, every tree in the garden, every tree but one. As an overflow of his generosity and the gifts that he presents before his people. And here's the serpent suggesting. Did he really say, you can't eat nothing? Just can't enjoy any of this? Eve, you could almost hear her say, well, that might not be what he said. But now that you mention it, it's kind of like what it feels like. She responds in verse 2, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden wait, what, 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 wait a minute there you know what, what happened to you may eat from any tree no here's Eve we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden verse 3 but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die you must not touch it God never said anything like that and you see here, what you're hearing is, it's not a problem of, of misquoting God. It's not a problem of a, a bad memory. What you're hearing is a heart that's beginning to understate God's kindness and overstate his restrictions. You see, what's nuts about what's going here, what's going on, not only then, but also in our very own hearts, is that God has been unimaginably generous to us. And we call him a crook. He says, take every tree, everything that I've made. It's all yours. And all they hear is, but you must not. One thing, one tree. You can almost see God walking through the garden with these two and saying, look at all the fruit of every tree, every tree, apple tree, apricot tree, banana tree. Blackberries and blueberries and boysenberries, cantaloupe and clementines, currants, cherries and coconuts, cranberry trees, dates, dragon fruits, durian, elderberry, I don't even know what that is, fig trees, goji berry trees, gooseberry grape, grapefruit trees, guava huckleberry, honeydew melon, jujube, jambul, kiwi fruit cheese, kumquat, lemon trees, lime, loquat, lychee fruit trees, mangoes, halfway there marionberry, miracle fruit, mulberry, nectarine, olive, orange, and among the orange, navel, mandarin, blood orange, tangerine, papayas, passion fruit, peach, pear, Anjou over here, Bartlett over there, persimmon, plum, pineapple, pomegranate trees, pomelo, Raspberry, Rambutan, salmon berry, star fruit, strawberries, well watermelon. Here enjoy eat have a feast. God said I can't have that tree. Dear friends, have you been deflating and shrinking and minimizing God's yeses in your life, in his word, and in the gospel, in inflating and maximizing and overstating God's no's? focusing on what God has not or will not give you, even if it's for your good, and even if it's 0.0001% among all that God has generously given to you. One tree. And in the heart, you start to say, I knew it. He's holding back. God's not good to me. Doesn't know what I need. Doesn't care what I want. Isn't going to give me my dreams. So I need to take it from Here, Take control. I know what's best. I'll make the rules. And here it is. I'll be God. You see, sin, before it shows up in your hands, it grows in your heart. It's an attitude as well as an action. Sin is a deep meditation of the heart. It's not just doing bad things. It's a disorder of the soul, a disfigurement of your spiritual beauty, a vandalism, of your glory, a cancer of the human condition. And we've all got it. Do you see it? And where are those places where you're just starting to feel badly about what God hasn't been for you or given to you? Well, you're starting to become suspicious of his kindness and character and goodness to you. Ways in which you say, no thanks, I'll take it from here. Ways in which you rise up and say, I must be in control. No one else is watching out for me, protecting me. Can you see it in every violation of God's law? Is that self-centered, seething, rebellious heart that loves to play God? Let's talk about that some more. First, the essence of sin. Secondly, the effects of sin. So here it is: sin infects the first people, and just goes buck wild from there. Uh, sin and evil—it's a—it's a spiritual and moral disease that that disintegrates. it it, it breaks things apart. You remember in Genesis 1, God's work of creation, His work of redemption, everything He always does is bringing things together, bringing order out of chaos. And here, we start to see things now, again, falling apart. We talked about how human beings are relational beings. We, We were built and made for relationships of all kinds. Starting with our relationship with God, extending to our relationship even with ourselves, that we, that we see ourselves rightly. Then moving out to our relationship with other people and even extending to the way that we relate to the natural physical world around us. It's just this beautiful ecosystem, this whole that God has made in perfect harmony, weaved together by the Spirit of God, now unraveling. Because of the evil that's been introduced into the world. You might say there's alienations that are being formed... You know, what's something that's alien, it, it, it's something that's a stranger to us, that, that suddenly because of sin you, f- you spin around and God is becoming a stranger to you, or you look at yourself in the mirror and you're becoming a stranger to yourself or to other people that you treat them as other and not you and the world around you. It's like you weren't even made for this place. The world feels like it's at war against you alienations and ruptures all throughout our human existence. And we're going to look at each of these over the next four weeks, the way in which we are, because of sin, alienated from God, from ourselves, alienated from others, alienated from the world around us. It affects every part of life, doesn't it? And for the remainder of our time, we're just going to focus on that first part briefly. The sin alienates us from God. It ruptures our relationship from God. We see in verse 8 that the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they did what? They hid from the Lord God among the tree of the garden. First time in human history that there was any kind of hiding. No need for it, no desire for it ever. And we've been hiding from God ever since. Running from Him, from consequences, from accountability, from His glory. Even on the way over here to church, I was getting into a, a little disagreement with my daughter who insisted on pushing the stroller and because we were as usual running a little bit late I said no no my dear it is something daddy must do we need to hustle along and of course as I took a couple more steps I looked behind and there was my daughter about 10 yards behind us with her arms to her side and scowling and just checked out now done not walking anymore she wanted to push the stroller Eventually, she came back around, but it was this clear and wonderfully helpful picture of guess who? Me. I'd rather be alone than not get to do what I want to (laughs) do. I'd rather be left behind, banished, than to have to surrender to the one who is truly in control. Not to draw too close an analogy between daddy and God, of course, right? <laughs> in verse 10, God, uh, Adam answered, God, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. The ways in which we find ourselves hiding from parts of God that we don't like, sin makes us relate to a pretend God, a God of our imaginations because we love to edit out the parts of him that are either controversial or uncomfortable or just distasteful, don't fit with my God, what I believe he ought to be like, which is no God at all, just another reflection of myself hiding from a true God, hiding because I'm unable to be honest, just refusing to repent, to come clean, to be honest You see this, verse 12, when they're confronted, Adam immediately says, well, what was wrong? Well, the woman you put here with me, uh, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. No, I'm sorry. No, it was my wrongdoing. It's her fault. Then you turn to the woman here and then God asks her some questions in verse 14. She says, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. A total inability to face wrongs to be real and true, to come to God honestly and truly. And so in verse 23, we see the Lord God banished Adam from the Garden of Eden and his wife together with him. In verse 24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, these are warrior angelic beings, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That we with our stubborn hearts have said, I'd rather be God and be banished. <laughs> sort of just leave me behind and go on without me because I will not give in. Here's a God who says, then banishment is your fate and has been our fate since this time, separated from the glorious presence of God, from the joyful, infinite, eternal blessing of God in its fullest extent. Yes, blessed. Yes, full of life and laughter in many, many ways. How good God is that He'd never fully extracted that away from us. And yet here we have in life, in exile, from His presence, in banishment, what really can rightly be described as a foretaste of what full separation from God, hell, really one day will be. This idea of everything right in life being pulled away and everything wrong in life being turned up and turned on upon those who insist on their own self-banishment. We were made to be in God's presence. And it's why every one of us, when we're apart from God, have deep in our souls what's rightly described as homesickness. Do you feel it? A longing to be back where you belong. And maybe you're filling it with other things, trying to get that sense of at-homeness with yourself or with other people. Or with other forms of spirituality, perhaps. And yet there's only one place, one place called home. And that's in the presence of God through Christ. Which brings us, finally, to the healing of sin. So what do we do? Sin's a problem. An alienation from God. A broken relationship with Him. What do we do here now? Do you know there's hope and there's good news for you? There's the true prospect of healing. Do you see it first of all in the very first thing that God does when He approaches the people? What does He do? Throw a temper tantrum? Spew venomous words of condemnation though He had every right to? He asks a question. Do you see this as a word of grace in fact? Where are you, Adam? What have you done? See, God is trying to engage them. He's, he's seeking them. He's pursuing them. He's giving them a chance to come clean. He's inviting them to reflect, to think, to ponder, to repent, to tell the truth, to say, God, I need mercy. God, I need forgiveness. Have you been driven to that point? Do you know that there's a God who's seeking you? Do you know a God who hasn't given up and who is not going to give up on you? So much so that he even went so far as to find a way to bring us back into his, yes, paradise. Into the unfettered, promised presence of God. And yet, of course, what stood in the way was a sword swinging to and fro, that the only way back into the way of life would be the way of a sword, which is the story of Jesus on the cross. Jesus who made a way for us to be restored to God's perfect presence. A healing of this broken relationship, this alienation. To give you back to the one in whose arms you always belonged. Alongside the one with whom you were made to walk. Your creator. This Jesus who took the punishment that you and I deserve on the cross. Do you hear his banishment for you as he hung crying out? Not my head, not my hands, not my side, my feet, not the pain, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, pulled me out and kicked me out of the perfect fellowship I had with the Father?" the one who was made to be in the garden and then some for all of eternity and infinitely was banished that we might be restored to Him. That we might know His love and kindness, that we might be brought into right fellowship, covenant, communion with the God of the universe. The only way back was the way of the sword, and Jesus took it for you. Do you live like this is true? Might you start to for the first time today, or maybe with renewed joy and strength again today? Coming before God... And saying, though my tendency is to want to play God, here today by grace and with joy, I say to you, I surrender all. In Christ and through his cross, I come now. I surrender all. It's an invitation to life, to joy, and to a deeper understanding of all that's gone wrong with this World, May God give us wisdom and grace to receive. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would come and that you would bring us not only conviction of sin, but deeper conviction of your generosity and kindness and the joy that we have in Jesus. We want to know you and out of the joy of that experience, be able to hold our hands up and say, God, yes, I do surrender all <clears throat> to you for you gave everything for me we pray in jesus name amen let's stand together and let's sing for a few minutes for a little Q&A, just a chance for us to digest some of this teaching and to uh, work through it together. So any question is fair game. Uh, would love to have you ask a question that'll help our back and forth, uh, but a few questions maybe that might be on your mind. What do you have for me, for us? Yeah, Jim. Yeah, that's good. Uh, the question is, so it, it chronologically Eve took of the fruit first and yet other places in the Bible talk about Adam um, having sinned. And the reason is, is that the way... Uh, both in the ancient Near East as well as what we perceive in Scripture, uh, the way things uh, were made in terms of covenants, in terms of formal relationships between God and people, is that Adam was always appointed as the covenant head, the representative, the chief representative of the human race. And so... It's interesting, even though Eve was the first one to actually take of the fruit, ultimately, Adam was held responsible. Uh, that he was the one that, of course, shared the glory and the responsibility of caring for the earth and all people beyond him and them. Um, and yet, ultimately, it was on him. He was accountable uh, for that ha- all that happened under his watch. It's a great question. Yeah, Aisha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the serpent, by all accounts in Scripture, uh, is Satan. So this uh, passage here does not make it explicit, but in different parts of the New Testament, looking back on this passage, they definitely describe um, this individual as Satan or uh, the devil. So personal, um, a personal being, uh, a leader of evil, as the Bible describes him, the prince of darkness. Uh, here, tempting uh, Eve and Adam what does it say about snakes in general, <laughs> it snakes in general? well it it doesn 't Well, it does, yeah. I mean, you're right. The very first few words of that verse do seem to suggest that there was something about the snake that seemed to fit the deal, right? Uh, I know. If there's any snakes in here, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, but no, it, it, what it seems to be is pointing us to. Uh, In the next couple verses, we'll look at some explanation, spiritually, why we have sort of a weird relationship with snakes and such. They're not the only animals, though. But no, this is not meant to be a passage that tells us that there's some significance to snakes, uh, that they are, for instance, evil incarnate, uh, and to be resisted as the devil or anything like that. So uh, nothing that goes beyond this unique event here. Yeah, Pat? And then in the back, yeah. 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 Well, because snakes are good too, you know. Um, and I think that is helpful, Pat, because it's it shows that snakes are not condemned wholesale as though there's no, you know, good... There's still a, Snakes are a part of God's creation. I know. We're almost belaboring the point here, I know. But, <laughs> you know, in defense of snakes. Um, still a part of God's good creation, but just in this moment was used um, through Satan as the means by which he communicated um, with uh, Adam and Eve. In the back. Yeah. That's good. So I think there are two layers maybe to your question. One is uh, there were other fruits. Uh, So the question is to what degree should we take uh, the two trees or or the fruit in general as being allegorical? And she was pointing out uh, that it seems that there are only two kinds of trees and both of them are not normal eating fruits. I mean, last time, have you been to Giant and picked up you know, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. No, right? Doesn't exist, right? Good point, right? Uh, The key thing, first of all, is that those are not the only two fruit in the garden, right? That actually both Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 in the conversation between the serpent and Eve, they make reference to all the other trees. And so it's clear that God blessed them with all different kinds of food and not just limited to fruit to eat. Among them, there were two trees, so my long-winded sort of list, slightly tongue-in-cheek, we don't know what kind of fruit was there, and some of the ones we have now were genetically engineered and such. But, um, but it really, it was two trees uh, that had spiritual significance. So you're right. They were set apart because of supernatural meaning that God had placed upon those trees. And so in that regard, they're not normal, natural ...fruit that you would find in the grocery store or that Adam and Eve would have eaten to the broader question, though, to what degree do we take parts of this passage allegorically? It is true that both Genesis 1 and 2 have symbolical, metaphorical, figurative features to it. It's told to us as a narrative in the ancient form of historical narrative, but there are poetical features to it. And that's why we have to do some good hard work in understanding, well, what here is metaphorical, what isn't? A lot of the clues that we have of what to take as being factually true and what is symbolically meant to be read as poetical or figurative is by how the New Testament writers look back upon it, including Jesus, and say, well, how did they see it? Jesus himself, for example, just to use one example, was Adam and Eve a real, are they real people? Jesus himself refers to Adam. And so he is sort of the answer key to understanding, well, If Jesus takes him that way, then I think we have good reason to start reading that feature of this passage as being historical and factual. And then so we work through other details as well. And so it's hard work to do that, uh, but it's too um, simple to brush over the whole passage with one big brush. Whether everything is metaphorical and mythological or everything is historical and factual... It's a lot more of a nuanced genre of literature that we have before us than that. Great question. One last question in the very back, and then we're done with that. Yes, ma'am. <coughs> yes. That's right. I think all the ladies understand.
3: <laughs>
2: no, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Adam was surely present the entire time, which is also why he was accountable. Hanging out nearby, neither condemning the serpent nor protecting his wife or vice versa, right? Uh, So already we see a problem in the relationship between them that is forming. Some people will point to that as evidence of part of some of the weaknesses that we see in men uh, and we could, I could go down the list in terms of different ways in which that might be the case across the board and across the human race. So I want to be careful in terms of genderizing certain things. Uh, but it is true that we all struggle with different forms of passivity, um, of an unwillingness to step into roles of responsibility. Um, I think that's a human thing, not just a gendered thing, but is there some clue here um, as to what generally can be a struggle? And I'd say not talking about uh, people throughout the human race, but specifically in dynamics within marriage. I think that's often what we do uh, find. Uh, so it's a, it's a, a keen observation. Uh, and I think we can take a few steps in that direction and say, hey, that's helpful. Uh, but we also have to be careful not to take it too far, too. Great stuff. And there's more that we, could about, but we need to wrap up here.